Hello everyone, welcome to the Talking Pharmacy podcast where we look back at what's been happening in pharmacy over the past week. My name is Richard Thomas, I'm the editor of Pharmacy Magazine, back in the saddle after a lovely week off in Devon, but really enjoyed listening to last week's pod chats on the long journey home. He certainly had a lot to talk about and a great interview, Neil, with, uh, with Peter Kelly. So joining me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of Pharmacy Network News, and Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist. And I should declare in the interest of full disclosure that we're recording this edition of the pod in the Red Lion pub behind the office for acoustic reasons only, if you understand. So, on the pod this week, we have a really powerful interview with the UK Black Pharmacists Association about racism, discrimination and inequality in the profession, and I would urge you to listen to that. And as always, we find out who's had a good week and who's had a bad week in pharmacy. So, let's start with good week. Another busy news week. Rob, who's had a good week for you? Well, very topically today, Richard, I think it's a very good week for the people of Scotland. Because today, or was it yesterday, marks the launch of the Pharmacy First uh, programme. So uh, you and I were both there, oh gosh, how many months ago? Four months ago? Years ago. Celebrating the, uh, the, the impending launch of the service as it was then. Yeah. And then of course everything, all hell broke loose as we all know. And we every, got locked down, the service got delayed and it's kicked off today. So I'm looking forward to hearing how it goes. Uh, some great words yesterday from the First Minister of Scotland uh, about the service and about, I thought she presented it really nicely by referencing it as things starting to be plugged back in and uh, better than before and access to services and you know, the new thing for community pharmacists, and I, I thought that was really a really positive thing. So I'm going to be looking forward to hearing from Harry and Matt and the, the team at Community Pharmacy Scotland about how that's going. Uh, and I guess if you haven't seen the details of the scheme, it's definitely worth a look. Uh, I talked to Rosemary Parr about it back in March, and I think there are some interesting things in there which genuinely move the cause of community pharmacy provision of, of, of uh, immediate care patients forward in a way which we which is leading the rest of the the UK so yeah good week for people in Scotland yeah really good week it was March wasn't it I think March middle of March yeah when it was due to be launched delayed by Covid and I should actually point out to our listeners that this is the first podcast that we've got the professor with us in person since lockdown. Since lockdown. I think so. it, I think it was the, I think it was the offer of a drink. Which is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> probably what caused it. Uh, yeah, great. Uh, good luck to, to to Scotland with that. It is a fantastic team. Great to have that political endorsement, wasn't it? And uh, like you say, Robert, it looks like a significant step forward for for the sector up there. Um, so yeah, very good week. Uh, Arthur, who's had a good week for you? I was going <laughs> to say on that on the the service in Scotland. What do you think would be the, the equivalent in England? Would it be the consultation service? Would that be, which people are maybe a little bit more, less less enthusiastic about than in Scotland? I think I think one of the one of the positive things about it for me is it applies to everybody. It's a it's a nationwide all person service, so we don't really have that equivalent um, in England. You know that, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's worth. You know, definitely going to be worth following to see how it how it goes, how people react to it. Yeah, but so I don't think there's a direct equivalent. No, and isn't there a prescribing element built into to part of it? With yeah, there is, and that, that's what I think. One of the novel areas is that it includes two services where the natural treatment for the for the correct diagnosis is an antibiotic, and that's why I think genuinely it moves the whole thing forward. Because I mean, we've all heard the discussions, haven't we? Uh, you know, pharmacists can't manage antibiotics and all that. Well, hang on a minute. You know, in Scotland, they're going to be doing that as part of this service. Mm. Yeah, no, it's two conditions, isn't it? It's UTI infections and impetigo. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. something that you could deal with in the pharmacy with effective prescription treatment, antibiotic treatments. Mm. Yeah, that to me seems more of a an end-to-end service to me. Uh, to me, the uh, community pharmacist consultation scheme, as you know, positive as it is for contractors in England, it, it seems a bit of a, it's always been a bit cumbersome. Yes, it's not indeed, an easy yeah. process to, to, to navigate through if you're, if you're providing it. And it seems 
to me anyway, more streamlined, the, the Scotland enhanced version. But we'll see how it, yeah. how it rolls out. Interesting one to watch, definitely. Yeah. <coughs> um, again, same as last week, instead of an outright good week, I'm going to say it's been an interesting week for <laughs> um, next year's batch of M Farm graduates. Um, there's the announcement this week that if the foundation program replaces the uh, pre-reg year from 2021, from September next year, then there'll be an independent pre prescribing element built into that. And this has been hugely controversial on, on Twitter and social media. People, I, I mean, people divide into, into camps along the lines of, you know, people aren't going to be ready. The M-Farm the degree as it stands now, like, it won't prepare people for this. Whereas other people say, you know, this is what we need to like uh, propel the profession forward now and in in the immediate future. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't know where I stand on it. Um, what what are your thoughts? Well, I think um, Rob would know this. Wasn't when the GPHC and and the schools of pharmacy kind of look at these things in a kind of strategic sense. It's always been a key aim, hasn't it, to build a prescribing element and have you know experiential learning built into the course. So. On that basis, I mean, it's a bit of a jump because it's been done quite quite quickly, but it, it's quite a promising start, isn't it? Is, that what you mean? Is it cart before the horse, though? Because GPAT are talking about overhauling education and training, but presumably that would be the whole five years rather than if there's a cohort next year who have the same undergrad. It, it, almost, it feels a little bit late for me to, at this point in somebody's you know, professional development um, basic programs and you say oh, by the end of this you might be able to prescribe but it's always been a direction of travel uh, when um, when the modernizing pharmacy careers program was around uh, the late Peter Noyce led a group that looked at whether prescribing uh, or the ability to prescribe should be part of the um, uh, should be in the pharmacy um, armamentarium as it were immediately on registration and decided at that point the answer was probably no on the grounds that there was something about prescribing which required a little bit of experience in practice um, and I mean anybody who's come up against sort of F1 medical students will know that their prescribing is absolutely shocking mm. uh, when they start because they don't have any experience of dealing with patients but it's always been a direction of travel um, and I'm not you know as perhaps so fair as I ought to be with what's in the detail of the course now but it, I you know I think that the debate on on social media has polarized around those two things hasn't it it's way too soon you need a bit of experience or this is where we ought to be and you know why not well, and also there's sort of grievances <coughs> that somebody who's been qualified 10 20 years <coughs> then they'll, they'll feel that well, I guess that your, the younger cohorts have been fast-tracked whereas it's not necessarily been available yeah. to them. There was, there was a comment, wasn't there, on social media? I think um, uh, one of the a pharmacists did say that, you know, why should, uh, 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 the words weren't used, but, uh, you know, wet behind the ears pharmacist who's just qualified be able to go into prescribing when you, you've got a pharmacist who's been in practice for 20 years and, should, and, have, and doesn't have that same, arguably the same opportunity. Well, I, I'd say why not <coughs> to that. There's nothing, there's no barriers mm. to stopping you. No, prescribing proper but those are the comments. If you wanted yeah. to, but that's what we're hearing on social media. I think it's it, it's more difficult for for like established pharmacists, certainly in community pharmacy, to to kind of go through the process because of the you know you need to have a degree of mentorship, and that's kind of quite hard to find. So it's a bit isolating for community pharmacists. But I don't think I would say why should they do it and not us. Mm. That's that's not an argument that that I hold much track with. Having said that, you know, like Rob, I'm not totally familiar with the details of the course. It's a very interesting development, and it could be a, a little bit of a, a signpost to, to the way that we're heading at the moment. It seems to happen very quickly, though. That did came out of the blue. I think came out. Well, it did to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but interesting. Okay, Neil, yeah. what about you? Well, for me, uh, it's Amazon. I think um, and Amazon, it's Amazon. A good week. Amazon, a good for a good good week for Amazon. Yeah, okay. surprise, surprise. I mean, uh, and and this this. Um, comes from the news uh, uh, this week that um, uh, Stefano Pessina uh, is stepping down as Chief Executive Officer after five years at Walgreens Boots Alliance and, he, and the announcement of his departure, uh, for want of a better word, you know, brings up this whole, the, the whole issue of what a bad state the, the company's in. So you're looking at the 
uh, poor performance of Walgreens, the poor performance of Boots. We, we all know about the predicament that Boots stores are in in this country. Um, <clears throat> some people think we, we might not see any more Boots stores in, in X amount of number, number, number of years' time. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so for me, the, the, that news must have generated something of a smile amongst Amazon executives, um, given that, uh, you know, that Amazon's whole business is online and they're trying to get into the online pharmacy market. And, I, and I, maybe I could be wrong here, but I think they, they, they would have garnered some degree of satisfaction at the, <laughs> the predicament that they're So I just think the, the, the news that Pacine is departing just sort of roused, reminded us just what, what terrible position that Walgreens Boots Alliance are in. And I think that um, that's pretty good news for, for Amazon. Might be a bit of a cynical view. He's not going there, is he? He's stepping, <laughs> he's stepping, he's stepping in sideways, aren't they? He's, still going, well, he's going to be the executive chairman. Executive well, he, chairman. Yeah, but he's, he's stepping down as CEO. Um, he still have his but it, uh, hand. But I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure he won't. I'm sure he won't <laughs> relinquish control completely. No, um, but I, it just just reminded everybody the news. You know, in, in all the all the nationals and all the uh, publications that covered this story, in you know, big or small story, whatever your opinion is. It still kind of brought back all the all the kind of. I think they're, know, massive, I think they're, massive, I think they're massively underestimating the man. Underestimated for soon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're talking about the greatest deal maker in pharmacy oh, no, history, absolutely. Yeah. aren't we? Yeah. And he's you know he's going to be the executive chairman, so he's not going to be a non-executive. Do you think he'll pull Walgreens Boots Alliance out of this hole they're in? The... Oh, well, that remains to be seen. Sort of quietly pulling the strings. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's very. I mean, it's massively challenging times, isn't it, for drugstores in in, yes. in the US? Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I read that that piece. I can't remember what it was in, which was comparing and contrasting the approach to the coronavirus sort of situation and mm. between uh, Walls, Walgreens and and CVS. Yeah. And they'd, you know, gone down quite different paths apparently mm. in the US um, in in dealing with it and thinking about the next eight steps forward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely one to watch. I mean, I, you know, as you know, some, some of you know, I did work for the organisation many years ago uh, when it was much, much smaller. And um, I think he's been written off a couple of times before. Yeah. And uh, notably has come back with some, you know, amazing but has he, comeback. But has he been in, or has it, the company that he's overseen in previous years been in the as deep a hole as they find themselves in now? I mean, I would argue this is probably the, the toughest, uh, deepest hole that Walgreens Boots Alliance have found themselves in, really. And, and yeah. It's going to take some... Well, it's a hole as measured by the share price, isn't it? It's still generating revenue. Huge losses, though. Is there an apparent successor? Well, we, we think there is, but we don't know for sure. Oh. No, we haven't, uh, but it's families, isn't it? It's sons, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's, it's yeah. very senior within the business. Yeah. I mean, I kind of agree with the, the thrust of what you're saying, Neil, um, in this, but not necessarily how you got there. I mean, I think uh, Mr. Piscina is, is, as Rob said, stepping kind of sideways, really. He's still got executive power, so he's still going to be in control. But I mm. think what the news about his sideways move did do was highlighted, as you said, yeah. highlighted media attention on the, yeah. you know, the, the underperformance of, of the company, and, it, and especially, um, you know, Boots UK and, mm. you know, Cross... They're, they're in retailing across the globe as well. So they're they in are, trouble. Yeah, they are in a, in, in, in a spot of bother. But it's, a, you know, that's also a, uh, it's a, it's a sign, isn't it, of the, the state of UK pharmacy in general, yeah. and I think all the, yeah. the, the multiples and independents. Are, yeah, know, it's a tough time all around, around, absolutely. But I mean, it needs to be said that Amazon haven't, you know, they, they want obviously they want to get into pharmacy, they, and uh, they don't have the trademark yet. So uh, I think it, the last. At the last count, I think they had been approved for the, for the, for the trademark. It had reached its next stage, and but there's a lot of opposition on Austra in Australia, uh, where the Pharmacists Guild of Australia has opposed to the, the Amazon's use of the word of the word pharmacy, I believe. So, they and they think it should only be used by trained pharmacists. So they've encountered a lot of opposition. So it's not a straightforward path for Amazon, but they always seem to find a way, don't they? And I think you know it's it online. It's damaged Boots business quite a lot. It's people, and particularly the pandemic, people are not people haven't been going to Boots for face-to-face -face kind of consultations during the pandemic, obviously. And online has really eaten into their business. So um, that's why I think Amazon are really rubbing their Yeah, hands. we've covered the online, sort of growth of online, haven't we? A couple of times on, on Pharmacy Network News, you know, what's happened with the online. And Boots are kind of 
conspicuous by their absence in that there. Yeah. PTU got a bit of a bump. No, quite a big bump. Mm. Um, sort of a mid-March through to mid-April. It's tailed off a little bit now. It's back to the sort of long-term, long-term growth. Echo certainly. Yeah, has Lloyd's done well, and which Well. Which is kind of Lloyd's and Lloyd's and the Well business yeah. took off. But Boots are nowhere on that. I think list. yeah, I think Well is in third place, and Boots is about half of them in terms of nominations. Yeah. So. And I'm not sure how much money Boots have invested in their online business. Really, I mean, are they putting all their eggs in one basket here? I don't well, think. I, you know, I think there's an issue that with Boots and underinvestment full stop, I mean, you know, they won't fat me for saying it, but you only have to go into any standard market town Boots and, and you know, the stores mm. look pretty ropey inside now, you know, there's, there's the, the fixtures and fittings don't yeah. look great. Um, whatever happens to Boots UK going forward under whatever ownership, whether it continues with, with WBA, um, there is a, uh, there'll be a lot of investment needed to, to bring it up to speed. Uh, so it is in a bit of a hole. We'll see what we'll see what Amazon Amazon does. I mean, I'm not quite sure about Amazon. I mean, we we you know it's the kind of it's a little bit of a lazy assumption that we all make that Amazon's eventually going to come in. Well, uh, uh, they're going at their own pace. Yeah, you know that mm-hmm. may or may not happen. They're more interested in um, free delivery, grocery deliveries at the moment. Yeah, I, I they're, they're delving into everything. But you, are, like, you could are. have expanded that to all, all online pharmacy. Really. Like yeah, pharmacy you to you. Yeah. You could. But like, I think till the, chan- till the chancellor wax on an online sales tax. Yes, and it might change which, things. Which, well, that uh, covers scripts though. Well, online goods. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, goods it, it, inevitably, it will be forgotten initially, yeah. and we'll have to prize it out of them it's at a, a later date. It's a like we have to prize rates, everything about pharmacy out of them at a later date. This will replace business rates. And I guess if the three of us get any calls from Boots Corporate Office, we need to direct them to Richard Thomas, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, no. I've got a perfect repost because Boots features in my uh, my good week. Actually, um, it's been a good week for me for uh, the Duchess of Cornwall. Uh, no, Camilla everybody's favourite royal. Uh, this week she popped into Boots, Piccadilly Circus, just down the road from us. Um, and this was in connection with the company's Safe Spaces initiative. So during lockdown, Boots partnered with the charity Hestia to offer its pharmacy consultation rooms to victims of domestic abuse to help them get in touch with, with specialist services. And uh, as well as Boots, in fact, lots of pharmacies have partnered with Hestia during lockdown in, in similar schemes. Now, Boots, of course, is involved in the Wash Bags project, which allows victims of sexual assault to access essential toiletries. So, you know, it goes without saying that these are extremely important services that Boots and others are providing to some of the most vulnerable people in society who need our help. So, I say well done to all the pharmacy teams involved in these services, and it's good to see the Duchess of Cornwall wearing a very nutty mask, I must say. Um, showing her support uh, at the boot store in Piccadilly Circus. So for me, uh, it's a good week for Camilla. So now it's time for our interview slot. Earlier this week, I spoke to Elsie Gomez-Campos, president of the UK Black Pharmacists Association, along with leadership board members Aura Ibanibo and Viviana Matanda about tackling racial injustice and discrimination in the sector in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. I started by asking Elsie why she felt there was a need for a body to represent black pharmacists and what she hopes the organisation, launched last year, will achieve. So thank you very much for inviting us to do this podcast. And the UK Black Pharmacists Association um, came about because if you think about it, we are a profession where 40, around 43% of uh, registrants are from the Black and Asian uh, minor, uh, minority. However, uh, Blacks are about 6% of these 43%. And in reality, there is nothing, um, uh, there is no organization that brings together black pharmacists to talk about the needs, uh, educational needs, and the challenges that they are facing in the place of work, a a safe place where they can't um, express their feelings of how they are being treated, and where they can discuss issues that only relate to them, and a place where you can go and talk to someone that looks like you, that may have experienced the same thing that you have experienced, feel safe about talking about it, getting advice and uh, supporting each other. So uh, rather than having a a black nation, we felt that there was a need for just a black uh, organization for black pharmacists, where we could support each other 
where we can open doors to each other, where we can't uh, lift us uh, between between us, um, and hopefully also make aware the rest of the profession of what is it that is like to be a black pharmacist working in the UK nowadays. In, in terms of what is that that we aim to achieve, the first thing is about raising awareness that um, unfortunately racial discrimination exists. And I, I am hearing people saying we don't know how we do not have racial discrimination in pharmacy. Well, we do. What we want to do is just to, in a positive manner, raise awareness of what that racial discrimination looks like, and um, trying to find a solution to it. Because if everyone is treated equally, if all uh, opportunities are equally shared between all of us, the profession is going to be a much better profession and we will be able to provide a much better service to our clients, our patients. So that is pretty much the, the aim of this organization. So do you see yourself as agents for change within pharmacy, a, a pressure group, if you like, or a kind of safe space for, for you to, you know, discuss issues that affect black pharmacists? Uh, it has started as a safe place. And uh, it was about just having the feeling where this organization was needed or not. Um, it is obvious that it's needed. And now what we are doing, we want to be the voice of the black uh, professionals to push change, to make, make sure that change do happen within our profession. Um, we are engaging with many different organizations. And, um, and I, I believe the impact that we are having has been very positive and very well received. And can I ask what's probably a very silly question to you, but I think it's important. Who, who can join the Black Pharmacists Association? I mean, I, can, I can't join as, as a white pharmacist, can I? That is not a silly question at all. That is a, a, a very fair question to ask and a very important question to ask. Um, the, so the Black Pharmacists Association is run by black pharmacists and is for anyone that identifies themselves as a black person. So we are talking about color of skin mainly. Uh, if you are black, then you are welcome to join us. Saying that, we know that um, we have been approached by uh, other uh, pharmacists that they are they are not black, but they they relate to us. They they know that there is a need for a group like us, and they want to support us. So while we are working at the moment, um, myself as a president with the rest of my marvelous board, what we are trying to make sure is that we have got a platform that we can share with champions. People, perhaps people like you, a, a, a male, white, pharmacies or white and um, that wants to support us that knows that there is a need for a group like us and want to come with your experience and talk to us teach us and, um, and work together with us so we want champions and it's something that we pretty soon we will be um, uh, calling for but okay. at the moment it's just for black pharmacists yes but but an inclusive organization in the sense of reaching out to the rest of the profession absolutely now, Viviana, some pharmacists may be listening to this and thinking, and Elsie's touched on this, you know, our, our profession is, is diverse. Uh, equality has always been important in pharmacy. I don't see any discrimination in my professional life. And yet the evidence points to widening gaps between black, BAME, and white pharmacists on things like pay, pre-reg, assessment performance, representation in senior leadership roles, fitness to practice cases, that there's a long list actually. What would you say to that? Yeah, so you're definitely right there. There is a long list. And um, what I'd like to do is just to touch on a few of the ones that you have mentioned and then possibly suggest some, sir, some positive solution, okay? Yeah. So starting with, starting with the widening pay gap. So the pharmaceutical journal, published a document in 2019 where they looked at salaries and job satisfaction and found that on average the pay difference between a white pharmacist and a non-white pharmacist was was about £8,400 a year. Now that is high, that's a very very big difference. Wow. Yes, yes. So it is evident that there is definitely a pay gap 
now a solution to this would be doing something similar to what the government suggested people do with the gender pay gap so it's all businesses with over i believe it's around 250 employees uh have been called by the government to report their figures in terms of pay so they can do exactly the same when it comes to ethnicity this isn't a name and shame type of policy this is something to allow organizations to set aspirational targets and to be transparent about their progress so this is definitely something that big organizations within pharmacy can look to doing in the near future and that could definitely help with the gen with the um, ethnicity pay gap okay yeah so another issue you touched on then was the performance of pre-reg students so it's been known for years now that black pre-reg students tend to perform less than their white counterparts with the gap the gap's been shown to be widening year on year now the general pharmaceutical council have actually done a study on exactly why they might be a gap they've published reasons such as the fact that most well a large percentage of black pharmacy students tend to be mature or overseas students there's numerous reasons like those ones and also the fact that they could be on visas they could there's also evidence of bias and prejudice again there's lots and lots of data about reasons for this for the low performance however no organization is actually set to come up with reasons or come up with solutions for these reasons so that's definitely something organizations can look into so think of a strategy exactly how to support any of these black students so they could definitely refer refer maybe to the uk bpa would be a good place to start because we've got a lot of services that help support pharmacy students what about role models role models are important are important in anyone's life so when you think so anything from your parents your favorite teachers superheroes role models are something that can make a big difference in a person's life within pharmacy as a young pharmacist myself when i look up i don't really see myself in anyone anyone higher or in, in superior positions so an example good would be the fact that we've got 20 22 schools of pharmacy and none of those heads of pharmacy are black another example would be superintendents of big pharmacy chains or even medium-sized pharmacy chains none of those tend to be black so for myself as a young pharmacist when i look up to people higher than me higher than the position i am now i don't see anyone that looks like me and that can be very very disheartening the reasons for this lack of representation might be due to bias whether that's unconscious or conscious bias a solution maybe to eliminate this bias could be maybe blind interviews when it can for these positions so something similar to what they're doing with the oral approach at the minute for applying for pre-registration positions another solution would be having maybe more diverse panels when it comes to inter the interview process because when every interview i've been at especially with panels I've, I've not seen anyone that looks like me on the panel and it is very important within all these organizations for us to focus on doing more training when it comes to diversity especially when it comes to unconscious bias training and this should definitely be offered to people who work in recruitment people that are leaders people that are mentors it's definitely something that we need to put on the leaders of these organizations because it is important that the leaders approach their approach all members of staff that might be feeling isolated members of staff from minority backgrounds because it is difficult when you're in a company where you are the only black person you feel isolated you don't you don't really have the courage to speak up because you don't you don't have the confidence that anyone will understand you. If no one looks like you, no one will understand you. Yeah, I thought Viviana, that was very eloquently, very eloquently put and presenting solutions 
um, is very important. And I think there has been such a lot of, of kind of research done recently, but perhaps less in the way of practical solutions. And, and you've outlined several there. Um, I, I sense from you that um, perhaps without wanting to put words into your mouth, um, pharmacy bodies maybe aren't doing enough to address these persistent systemic issues? Or would you like to see the pace of change accelerated? Yeah, so there's definitely more that can be done. Obviously, following the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that has gone on recently, we have seen acceleration. We've definitely seen different organisations set out initial action plans. What I feel is important going forward is that these action plans aren't just something that we do now and then forget about. It's important that this is something that is continually discussed and is put into everyday practice. So professional bodies really need to look at making sure that within their organisation they have specific people looking at diversity and they have specific programmes just to help support pharmacists from all different types of backgrounds. Aura, can I ask you, as individual professionals, how can we be more proactive in, in fighting systemic discrimination where we encounter it and, and acting against bias in pharmacy? Um, well, for me, the first thing we have to do is, the, I'll start with the phrase that I hear all the time, I don't see colour. People are so quick to say, I don't see colour. I find that a bit ridiculous because we all see colour. And the question here is, what do you do when you see colour? So um, to answer your question, fighting systemic racism, we have to understand that, you know, it goes past the overt things, the things you see. It's, it's, it's more, more, it's the things you, you don't see. So for instance, you know, the microaggressions that people might experience at work, you know, the little things, the comments about the hair, you know, those are little things that, you know, you can appreciate, you know, you might not understand, but those are things that, you know, make black people feel, you know, small in the workplace. Um, and how do we move from not racist to anti-racist? I mean, becoming more politically involved, signing petitions, um, racism as we see it today, it, it's, it's, it's systemic and it's, it's been there for years. It's not something that's just come up now. So we all need to, you know, acknowledge that it's, it's you know, it's long term. It's, um, and then also in the workplace, like Viviana says, we need to speak up and support black colleagues. And when people complain about racism, it's, it'll do us well not to roll our eyes and say oh here they go again but really really listen and try to understand because you know it's it's easy for you to just brush it away because it does not affect you but then you know being an ally means you know trying to understand the other person and you know making them feel as comfortable as you are in the workplace. Elsie, can I ask you, have you suffered incidences of, of racism and discrimination uh, over the course of your career in pharmacy so far? Uh, the answer is very simple, yes. And, um, and this is one of the reasons about this, this UK Black Pharmacies Association. I have suffered racism and and one of the things that I want to highlight, and one of the things that I need, we need a little bit more education, is that racial discrimination, uh, many people say, oh, that is a white and black thing. I have suffered very, uh, very strong racial discrimination. I think that is the word that I can use because I don't want to use any word that may offend anyone. That have come from colleagues that are from the Asian community. And, um, and it's, you know, uh, it has been very subtle and it has been uh, very damaging and it's something that has affected me, uh, even mentally, when you are the only black person there and you have called your manager that is belittling you, that you are, you are a senior manager and they don't see you. They feel that um, the team that you are managing, they can directly, you know, go to them 
you have seen as a, as a manager myself has seen my managers telling people that I supposed to give instructions telling those people don't to follow the instructions that I have given to them I have seen um, a minority a from you know a, a pharmacists from my team that have given the instructions and they have not followed it and the only thing that I can think of is you, know, you, you go back and you're thinking why is this happening to me and it is not only until you know I came together with this group and I felt and um, I stopped thinking that the problem was with me because many of the people were suffering exactly the same thing so um, I have suffered uh, uh, racial discrimination and um, I have highlighted it. I have gone to the General Pharmaceutical Council. I have written about it. And as um, my colleagues were saying, our pharmacist organization needs to do more about it. No one is going to come out and say, look, my organization is racist, and, but racial discrimination does exist. And what we need is, um, we need to stop uh, saying, uh, being so defensive about it. And the first thing that we need to do is to say, look, we have got a problem. How can we support every single one of our members? Because as a person that has suffered, as a person that have lost a job, almost my career, I almost took my own life because of this racial discrimination. I can tell you that it affects you. It takes, it, it, it takes so much from you. And there is nothing that you can do about it. Because for instance, if I am not performing well in my job, I may go and do a, a continued professional development to improve the way that I do my job. If I have got some communication skills, I may go and do some practice and get some help and may improve my communication skills. But how can I improve the color of my skin? How can I improve where I am coming from? So being discriminated for how, because of the way that you look, because of the color of the skin, or because where you are coming from, because of your religion is something that is unacceptable, is something that is totally illegal. And when you do suffer from that discrimination, it doesn't only affect you, it affects the people around you, it affects your family, because you will become depressed. You know, you will start thinking about what is the way out. And uh, sometimes what usually happens if you are the only one in your place of work, you may just go to a corner, you may don't want to communicate with anyone. So yes, I have suffered uh, racial discrimination, and uh, it was only yesterday that I was talking to one of um, um, a black female pharmacists, going with exactly the same thing that I suffered in the past. And um, I am determined to make sure that my experience in Ossex is no longer the experience of other pharmacists um, like me. Elsie, that's very powerful and shocking, upsetting, actually, what you say there. but encapsulates why the work of the the Black Pharmacists Association and others is, is so important in tackling discrimination and, and racism in pharmacy. We'll close the interview there but thanks so much to Elsie, Viviana and Aura of the UK Black Pharmacists Association for coming on the pod. It's been a, a very thought-provoking perhaps uncomfortable at times interview which is how it needs to be if we are to confront and properly address some of these incredibly important issues within our profession and in wider society too. It's certainly given me cause to examine my own thoughts, beliefs and behaviours and possible bias too going forward. So once again, thank you very much for joining us on the pod. So that was a very interesting interview with Elsie, Aura and Viviana there. Plenty of food for thought for all of us, I think. Uh, that was a slightly shortened version of the interview. The full interview will appear as part of our In Conversation with podcast series, which we'll be releasing in the next few days. So now it's time for Bad Week. Let's start with you this time. Rob, who's had a bad week in pharmacy for you? I don't think it's been a great, great week, but the right review, Richard. Right. Uh, so the latest news is that the whole thing seems to have been uh, delayed for a period of reflection over the summer. Really? You get somebody in, they talk to loads of people, they come up with a view, they present it, and now we have to, we're going to spend a long, long time deciding whether we like it or not. And I just think some of the things in there need to move a little bit faster than that. 
and this is the sort of thing that I expected. I mean, pharmacy's great at this. Let's just think about it a bit longer. I mean, I've been in LPC, been at sat on LPCs where everybody wanted to think about it next time. Um, and at one point, this this report which has come out from the PSNC and LPCs, I think together, actually suggests we need to make sure that contractors, we need to make sure that we ask contractors what they think their view is. Well, nobody who has a review asks 11,000 different people what they think the answer is. I mean, that's just a recipe for doing not very much. So I was trying to work out whether this is kicking the can down the road or a sensible kind of pause in the whole process that will actually then result in some meaningful action come September. And it just felt a little bit too much can and not enough action for me. You're talking about probably the, arguably the biggest, most radical reforms since what well, since the year dot in pharmacy, these could be extremely, but well, are going to be extremely far-reaching. So I don't, for me, I don't think that there's anything wrong. In fact, I would go further. I would say that it's actually necessary to take as much time as possible, and not just plow into it. I think, the, and I do think that contractors' views are are really do need to be to be done. Do you not think some elements of it, though, Neil, need to, are, are, are the sort of things that are just. Mm. The right thing to do. So I would suggest things like getting to a point where there's a negotiating team that actually knows what it's doing. Yeah. Is I mean, who's going to disagree with that? No. And and no. why can't that that kind of thing start to happen immediately? One of the one of the things which I think is getting lost in the discussion about structure, and we've had that discussion on the podcast before, is the idea that. Uh, is that part of the re review which suggested that pharmacy, community pharmacy needs a very clear vision and a strategy to get there and that needs policy development and all of that and those kind of things I think are getting lost. Again, organisational development is not necessarily something that you need to do by committee because ultimately somebody has to say right we all agree what the answer is let's just go do it and you can't then ask every so often, you know, thousands and thousands of people, whether they think having a policy unit or whatever, or this is, is the right answer, because, you know, you're going to get a mix of views all the time. No, of course, mm. but I, I still think, I mean, they're, they're, we all want a better, more effective negotiating team. We've been asking for that, you know, uh, for, for, for ages, and, and that's at the heart of it, of course it is, but I, I think that there are a lot of other things in those reforms that, are, that need a bit more thought and there are things in there that there's a lot of there's a, there's a I think there's a great potential in there for quite a lot of conflict and I'm talking about between the multiples and the independents. I was just gonna say I mean this is said to death but um, we do have two fundamentally yeah. divergent camps and they both will be very busy behind the scenes trying to make sure that they're you know represented to the nth degree on whatever negotiating body mm. um, so that could be I can that might confound if you, if you want things to happen quite speedily, I can, I can imagine that's just always going to be a stumbling block. I'm not, I'm, reviews are much needed, much called for, but I think that there's a potential there for, um, you know, a, 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 a power struggle. And, and it, independents are quite concerned that it could end up being less LPCs or what will be community pharmacy locations, uh, mergers. That's all fine, but if there were fewer LPCs or CPLs, that could end up being controlled more, there's more of a chance of it being controlled by, by, by yeah, multiples. I think I'm perhaps verging more towards Neil on this than Rob. I, I, the thinking behind it, isn't it, to kind of PSMC pull together a kind of working group to present something at the LPC conference in September. So what's that? That's only about six weeks away. So um, perhaps a little bit more reflection. I suppose it depends what the what the working group comes up with. But I think aiming for the LPC conference as a kind of signpost in the process. It's not a bad idea. I suppose it depends what's then presented to the LPC conference. And actually, what does the LPC conference decide, if that's what the, the intention is? So I think, that's, I think the, the plan is a little bit vague, but I do understand building towards something that the LPC conference is a useful kind of staging post. But it remains to be seen what this working group comes up with. Um, and I do agree with Robbie in the sense that there is a need to consult. Well, they have already consulted, and they, you know, people who wanted to, to contribute have contributed, and everybody's views have been reflected, and 
Professor Wright's taken them on board. So there is a kind of limit to, to the amount of consultation you can do. You won't, will never do anything. But I think building towards the LPC conference, you know, as the next stage in the process, not only about six weeks away, isn't it, really, over the summer, that kind of makes, makes sense to me. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, Arthur, who's had a bad week for you? Uh, it's non-pharmacy. It's a bad week for holidaymakers, <laughs> especially those who are in Spain or who, whose holiday in Spain went beyond the was it midnight on Saturday deadline, and, and then you're told you have to, to quarantine for 14 days afterwards, which is, I mean, it seems like it's necessary from a public health uh, standpoint because we're seeing, I don't know if it's a second wave or a resurgence of the first wave, I don't know exactly how you define it. Um, so it does seem, but it does seem important that um, we uh, enforce some of the borders a little more strictly that that we've sort of been uh, relaxed in the past c couple of months. But um, I think it could have been handled a little bit more. I think we had that intelligence that that the coronavirus was on the rise in Spain again for about ten days before this was announced, and then it was announced with such sudden effect that you'd be a bit. Um, Poor Arthur, there speaks the man who's had about three foreign holidays <laughs> yes, this yeah. year, so speaking with understandable frustration. Wasn't, wasn't Grant Shapps caught in Spain, or was he, was he, was he there? He was, yeah. He got caught, which he, there's always a silver lining to yeah. cloud, clouds. <laughs> so I don't know if he was caught so much, he, he was just there. He was just there. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really portray a government in complete control, really, does it? No. Um, no. Uh, but you know, I can understand them wanting to 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 not repeat the mistakes of of, of March and, and Italy. But, but they it kind of made it worse, didn't they, by including the Canaries and the Balearic Islands, where the the rate of COVID infection is lower than here. Yeah, it's like, but one yeah. person. Yeah. But the government. You know, and then they said, oh, because there's there's intra-country travel. Well, who goes to Mallorca and then nips across to Barcelona or Madrid? You don't, do you? I just the whole thing was. I mean, that just seemed to me to be a bit botched. And when they caught Grant Chaps getting his <laughs> luggage out of his car when he got home, I mean, he, <laughs> even he didn't seem to be able to explain it particularly well, did he? Brilliant. Oh dear. Okay then. Yeah, bad week. Very bad week for, for holiday makers in Spain. What about you, Neil? Is that a bad week for you? For me, it's it's Lewis Hamilton. Um, Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton. Yeah. Um, he was forced to to to, to clarify. On, uh, on social media, but he's not against the COVID-19 vaccine after he uh, showed an anti-vaxxer post, or he posted an anti-vaxxer post on, on his Instagram account. Um, what, for those who, I'm sure a lot of people know about this, but what, Hamilton shared the post by the internet personality King Back, um, which claimed that Bill Gates was lying during a discussion on COVID vaccine trials when he said in an interview that vaccine, the vaccine will not be used to implant microchips into humans. Um, Hamilton was immediately accused of spreading dangerous misinformation. Um, some people think he sh maybe should stick to motor racing, but uh, needless to say, uh, Mr. Hamilton deleted the post after uh, attracting quite vociferous uh, criticism. Um, he's got over 18 million followers, I think, on his on his uh, on his account. So, uh, you know, maybe there is a, a quite a um, a strong argument to say. Just be a little, a little bit more responsible, you know, with what you're posting. We've all seen celebrities posting things on social media that are completely, completely wrong. So for me, Lewis Hamilton could have been a be could have been a better week for Lewis. Uh, absolutely, what, what a dick. I'm sorry, but um, <laughs> Novak Djokovic has done exactly the same thing, isn't it? He's gone around spreading some ridiculous anti-vaxxers. I've got no time for this whatsoever. Right. It's grossly irresponsible, and he he, has he, he has apologised or back. I, I don't know if he's apologised. He certainly deleted the. The uh, the post, which doesn't really, you know, people have seen it. What does that What does that do? He should know better. I, you know, I am totally brass off with this. It, and we had some more. I wasn't going to mention Trump because I thought we've spoken enough about that idiot on there. But he's been going going on about chloroquine. Hydro. I tell you, I will take my medical advice from the people who know about medicine, not from celebrities or idiot presidents or people like Lewis Hamilton. Do you, so. Are you referring to the much respected Dr. Fauci? Well, he knows but what he's on about. Absolutely, he certainly does. I wish, I wish tr Trump doesn't Trump. appear to consult with him. No, he doesn't. So absolutely. I'm just... It, it is incredible. In all seriousness, like you say, what, yeah. 18 million... 18 million followers. Twitter followers. I think so it was Instagram. I think it was on Instagram. Well, it's, that's yeah. incredibly damaging to have that kind of message going yeah. across an audience, you know, as, yeah. as big as that. Um, yeah. I, I'm just very disappointed with your bad week, Neil. 
Because I, I thought you were throwing down challenge, but I had to violently disagree with anything you said, and I, I clearly in this one can't. Yeah. So well done. <laughs> yeah, total agreement. Well, it was my bad. But all right, my bad week nomination. Well, it's been sent in to us this week. Oh. By, yeah, by a concerned listener. Now I can't say who it is, so I'm going to write it, write the person's name down, and then we'll just say it. So just uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm writing this person's name down and showing it to my my colleagues so for the for, for, for context. Ah, okay. Um, so it rhymes with. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me explain. So this is in connection with the uh, very popular not forty percent hike in the pharmacy premises registration fees that the uh, the GPHC desi- uh, decided. So obviously this has gone down like a, a lead balloon with pharmacy owners, it's safe to say. So uh, our listener, who is a very prominent member of the profession, would you agree? Yes, everybody's nodding, nodding their heads. Very highly respected business owner. Uh, writes and says, um, I don't like to lobby you, um, but uh, our, this fee rise uh, is our nomination for bad week. And then you are. He or she asks, is there a category for baddest week? Okay, very cross. This decision seems unworldly. The stay of execution is almost meaningless gesture gesture politics. I suspect contractors will remember and resent this for a long time. We'd be interested in the rental square footage space they occupy in Canary Wharf. The area is notoriously expensive and will become considerably more so if they're all working from home. And if they could cope, why would we want them to go back? What plans do they have to adapt to this challenge? So, lots of criticism and anger even over this decision. And AIM, CCA and PSNC all weighed in. Uh, I don't think the society said anything. I've not seen anything anyway. They'd um, love to be able to increase their fees by 40%. 40% hike in society fees. Yes, they close that. Close that gap. <laughs> That deficit, got to get that closed. Um, but yeah, this this timing is awful actually over this over this uh, the premises fees. I think I mean it's an additional financial burden, isn't it, that the sector can least afford it. And of course, it comes on the back of last week's announcement over antibody testing, which I think you guys discussed last mm. week. Um, which to me, from a a regulatory perspective, was was. Unfathomable. I mean, if you're going to regulate on the basis of, of evidence-based public health benefit, you know, I look forward to the, the GPHC cracking down on homeopathic remedies or chubba chups lollies. So, all in all, another bad week for the GPHC, and it, it had been having such a decent COVID crisis too, but no longer it would seem. Packed pod again. We have to close it there. Thanks, as always, to Rob, Neil and Arthur. The pod is available on the Pharmacy Magazine website and all your usual download sites. Just search for Talking Pharmacy. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back again next week. That's a wrap. My beer has gone flat. Neil, you're <laughs> round. <laughs> Shampers?